I'm going to start with a reading from Luke chapter 7, which should come as a surprise to no one. Uh, Actually, I've been working my way through the book of Luke for years and years and years and years. And I don't think I've ever actually preached out of this bit before. Like there are a lot of bits that I've preached multiple times because I keep coming back to them, but I'm pretty sure that this is actually a new section of scripture for us. I don't think I have ever preached from here. Pretty sure I haven't. Anyway, Luke chapter 7. I'm going to start just with a few verses, but we are hopefully going to get through more than two verses. Uh, So this says, They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. And this news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. So immediately before this, there is a section of scripture where Jesus raises a guy from the dead. So he's been healing the sick. He's been doing miraculous feeding and stuff. And he raises a guy from the dead. And then it says, everyone was filled with awe and praise God. And everybody heard that there was a great prophet who was cruising around the place. And then in verse 18, it says, John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? And now I want to, I really want to cover more of this section, uh, but we need to stop there because there's already an enormous amount to talk about there. I realize it doesn't sound like it, but I promise you there is. uh, Because John sends two of his disciples to talk to Jesus. And the reason John has to send his disciples instead of going himself is that John is in prison. Uh, Yes, John got imprisoned. Uh, So if we, Just kind of skip over to Matthew briefly. In Matthew 14, it says, Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother, his brother's Philip, uh, his brother Philip's wife. It's a little awkward, this whole situation. Uh, For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. Now, there are a lot of Herods to be fair. So it is very confusing to try and keep a hold of all your Herods and what they have been up to. Uh, I think that you should get a little notebook, a Herod notebook, and you can keep notes on on all the Herods. It's a big problem. Uh, I, I, I believe that there were nine notable generations of Herods. And, and of the nine notable generations of Herods, there were four generations that caused trouble for Jesus and for the early church. Uh, So let's run through them quickly because I have a small soft spot for the history of the Herods. I think they're quite interesting. Uh, So first of all, we have in Matthew 14, this is uh, Herod Antipas, uh, who has two half-brothers also named Herod. Very helpful. But we are going to call them Philip I and Philip II because that's also their names. Uh, They were Herod Philip and Herod Philip. Philip and Philippe. No, I'm pretty sure that it was Philippos uh, and it was neither Philippos nor Philippos. I don't think that's how it works in the Greek either. Okay, so they were the sons of Herod the Great. So Herod the Great, remember, great builder, crappy human, terrible person, built amazing structures, but was also a terrible, terrible human being. Uh, So he had a bunch of sons and he named them Herod. So there was Herod Antipas and there was Herod Philip I and Herod Philip II. And he had some others as well um, that tried to kill him and that he killed. Herod the Great was a like a bit crazy, so was Herod Antipas. They all ended up killing a whole bunch of their family members. So Herod the Great was the king of all of Judea when Jesus was born. So when you think of the Herod that tried to kill all the babies, that's Herod the Great. 
And then Herod the Great, when he died, he passed on his kingship to four of his sons uh, in what we call a tetrarchy. So none of them got to be completely in charge. So there was Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, which is the one who locked up John. Uh, so he locked up John. But the thing is, see, he, Herod Antipas, he went and stole his brother's wife. It's a bit messy. Um, so uh, Herodias, yes, her name is Herodias. Uh, and this is a historical thing, not just some weird Bible thing. She legit has pretty much the same name. She married her half-uncle, gross, and then divorced her half-uncle and married her other half-uncle. Yeah, equally gross. And now this is against the law. So in Leviticus 18 and in Leviticus 20, it says that for a man to have sex with his brother's wife is dishonorable. And for a man to marry his brother's wife is a violation of the law. It's uh, impure. So it's super bad. And John started calling out Herod Antipas and he's saying, you should not be marrying your brother's wife. That's disgusting. And Herod Antipas, um, at the, you know, at the pushing of his now new wife Herodias, arrested John, chucked him in prison. So things are going badly for John. If you know the story, it gets worse for him. He had more than four and three of them were named Herod. Herodias. Yeah, so two of the Herods were both married to this woman, Herodias, uh, and then it's a total mess. The important bit, though, is that John is in prison. That's the important bit. Uh, and just for interest's sake, after um, Antipas was uh, one of the Tetrarchs who was locked up, he was the Tetrarch over Galilee and Perea, two of the pieces of, of all of Judea. Uh, after him there was another bloke called Herod Agrippa. And Herod Agrippa is the guy that killed James and imprisoned Peter. Uh, and then he was succeeded by his son, Herod Agrippa II, who, who is the Herod that Paul was brought to. So when it talks about Herods all through the, New, in the Gospels and New Testament, it's talking about a bunch of different Herods. So it starts with Herod the Great, then it goes to Herod Antipas, and then it goes to uh, Herod Agrippa, and then Herod Agrippa II. That's kind of the succession of Herods that caused the church problems. And then there was that, that, that lady, Aunt, uh, Herodias, who married a couple of the Herods, and it, it made a whole bunch of problems for them, because not only did um, Herod have to divorce his current wife to marry Herodias, his current wife was actually a princess from the next door kingdom. So you guys have seen, like when I went to Petra, I showed you those photos of Petra, those incredible um, facades cut into the rock from like Indiana Jones when he comes around that corner and it's like, oh my God, um, or maybe not blaspheming. Um, uh, you know, when he comes around that corner and he's like, oh wow, that's amazing. That kingdom, the kingdom of the Nadabeans, Herod had married the princess of that kingdom. So when he divorced that princess in order to marry Herodias, it caused an international incident and a war and Rome had to send an army up to defend their territory. It was a total disaster. So John calls him out and gets locked up in prison. And then later on, Herodias's daughter, I think it's Salome, um, she does like some flashy booty dance and all that. And it impresses the bloke so much that Herod promises her something. And um, so then Herodias and the daughter concoct for him to bring John the Baptist's head to them on a plate. Yes. So it ends badly for John. So John is in prison. Calling two of his disciples, he sent them to the Lord to say, are you the one who is to come? 
Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? John wants to know if Jesus is really the Messiah. Are you really the Messiah? Go and ask him straight up because I need to know if he's really the Messiah, which is kind of an incredible question because John the Baptist, this is not just any regular John, this is the John the Baptist who literally leapt in the womb full of the Holy Spirit when Mary told Elizabeth that she was pregnant with, you know, that she had conceived the, the, the Son of God. So it's like, This dude was filled with the Spirit in the womb. He lived a life where he knew who Jesus was. He baptized Jesus in the River Jordan. And if you remember that scene, it was a little bit spectacular. It wasn't just a regular baptism. At the end of this weird baptism, Jesus comes out of the water and the sky cracks open and a dove descends and God literally says, this is who, this is my son whom I love. So now John, that same John the Baptist, He's in prison and he's like, I don't, I don't know. Ask him. Ask him if he really is the Messiah. This is my son whom I love. This, is, this statement, this is my son whom I love, is, a, um, is part of a prophecy in Isaiah 42 uh, with, that says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. See, when, when Jesus has his baptism, John, of all people, who was a, a, a scholar, probably an Essene, he knew the Bible back to front. He was a prophet for goodness sakes. This is a guy that knows his Bible and he knows that when a voice from heaven says, this is my son, that it's talking about the one who is to come. It's talking about the one who will bring justice to the nations. But John is in prison and John is afraid and John is alone and he's scared and he's worried and he's reevaluating everything and he's not sure anymore. So he says, to his disciples, go and ask him, are you really the one who is to come? Because if you're not, I've given my life for nothing. If you're not, then I, then I, have, I have sacrificed everything to herald someone who isn't the right person. I don't know if you've ever felt the way John felt in that prison cell. Even though you've had incredible experiences, maybe even miraculous experiences, where you've been overwhelmed by the presence of God, you've heard his voice, but then all of a sudden you you reach a dark place later on and you start to question whether or not that was true. Days when the universe just seems out to totally screw with you and nothing is going right. I don't know if you've ever felt like, like God should intervene, Like if ever there was a moment, this is the moment that deserves God's intervention and then it doesn't happen. If you live with a chronic illness, uh, if you've ever experienced a, a, a miscarriage or if you've tried to fall pregnant and been unable to, if you're, if you're a person who is single, who's just desperate to find someone to love, but you, but you can't seem to find anyone. If you're in a marriage and, and things aren't going how you thought they would go. Maybe you've lost your job or your car has been smashed or maybe you were just gloomy. Maybe the weight of pandemic and being locked in and the economy and the constant news and the Black Lives Matter and the protesting and all of the conflict that's going on around the world, maybe you were just overwhelmed with gloom and you're saying, is he really the Messiah? 
as you look around, the climate is falling apart. We have limited over, you know, we have extreme heat and then we have bloody extreme hail and then extreme smoke and fires. Maybe you're just dismayed generally when you look at the political system and our leaders, or maybe you're even more dismayed like I am when you just look at how dumb regular people are. You, you go onto Facebook and you think, how, how do we allow this to happen in a society? How do we allow people to be so unbelievably ignorant of what is true and what is good and what matters when you see how we treat each other and you are just overwhelmed by it all and you think if Jesus was meant to bring justice to the nations, then maybe it was all a crock. Maybe you feel locked in a prison full of doubt and it just doesn't make any sense anymore. See, John had heard that Jesus was doing miracles. John had heard that Jesus had just raised someone from the dead. He was fulfilling the mandate of Isaiah 61. That mandate, you know, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim freedom. Wait a minute. And now John, all of a sudden, John has got to be thinking freedom for the captives and setting the prisoners free. Hey, hey, someone go tell Jesus, the prophet, the Baptist, he's locked up and imprisoned. This is the moment, Jesus. This is when you're meant to come in. Bring in the cavalry. This is when the big fight starts right? He's going to fulfill that mandate. He's going to do what is promised. He's going to bring justice and he's going to bring it at the end of a sword and he's going to beat up all of those dumb Herods and he's going to beat up all of those dumb Romans and he's going to set me free from prison. You see, John is a Jew and he is a Jew that is waiting for their warrior David King to come and reestablish the supremacy of the Jews. John spent his whole life, his whole life doing everything to be pure, to be right, to be good. And he's looking at Jesus and he thinks, yeah, he's doing all this good stuff, but he also hangs out with all these impure people and does all these impure things. And maybe, maybe Jesus isn't who he said. Maybe Jesus isn't who I said. So he's freaking out in his prison. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. It's that Isaiah prophecy, just one after the other there. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. See, Jesus has hidden all of those marks that he knows John understands. He knows that John knows these verses. And he's saying, yes, I am the one who is coming. But he stops just short of setting free some captives there. What a ripoff. This is what he says to those messengers. Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. I am the one who is coming. And I am the Messiah. And I am the one who heals and restores and makes wrong things right. I am the one who fulfills all of the promise that will bring justice to the nations. But John, I am not coming to set you free from prison. 
And blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. I am not the violent revolutionary that you want me to be. This is not going to come about the way you expect it to come about. And John, John, you will be blessed if you can move beyond this without stumbling. Don't allow this to stumble you. Don't allow this to get in the, the way of your great faith that you have heralded and proclaimed. Don't allow this to let you stumble, John. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Don't let this adversity cause you to fall. And after John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. See, Jesus loved John. He loved John and he knew that he just said to his disciples, and he just said, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna come for you, John. So don't look at this just as a, a scripture. Look at this as a human moment where he's just said, you need to go and tell John I'm not coming for you. And then it's like he shares a eulogy about John. Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If, if not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. See, John is, uh, Jesus is making a stark contrast here between the, the false king, the false tetrarch Herod, who represents nothing but an association of violence and a corruption and collusion with government of, of the Romans. And he's saying, John is not like that. Did you come out into the wilderness to see that, to see Herod? A reed swayed by the wind. Herod had coins printed and on the coin it had his name wrapped around the, a reed flapping in the wind. He's saying, did you come out here to see Herod? Because Herod's not that impressive. Did you come out here to see a man dressed in fine clothes and luxury? Because he's there in his palace. The man out here is a prophet. And not just any prophet. He's the prophet that is the messenger that will herald the Son of God. He is the prophet that will herald the coming Messiah, the end of the old, the beginning of the new. The kingdom of God is now and John is the herald of it. And that is incredible, but it's better to be a servant in the new kingdom than to be the herald of the old. It is greater to be in the new than it is to be in the old. And even though John was the best, the greatest man that had ever been born to a woman, it is better for you and I to be in the kingdom as it is present than it was to be in the kingdom before it had come. John marks the end of an era. You see, and now Jesus is being as bold as he possibly can here. Because by calling out John as the prophet, that uh, I think it's from Malachi, that would be the messenger that comes before him, Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah to everybody who is there. They can all read between these lines. They know what he is saying. 
See, John had been arrested because he was accusing Herod of this uh, debauched relationship with Herodias, but he was also arrested because he was proclaiming a different king. And imagine if they arrested John for being a herald of the king, imagine what they're going to do to the actual king himself. When I, when I read this section of scripture and like, like many other sections of scripture, that I, I am relieved because I identify with John in that doubt. In the same way, way, when I read through something like Ecclesiastes, I identify with the character Quallet there in Ecclesiastes because he says, everything is meaningless, or rather, I can't grasp the meaning of anything. It, nothing makes sense. And, and I feel like that at times. So I, when I identify with that Ecclesiastes voices, it makes me feel like I'm allowed to have those feelings. When I read through the Psalms and they say, everyone's out to get me and it's crap and I want God to smite them all. When I feel the rage of those, of those laments and in, in, in the, the imprecatory Psalms, I feel like, like the scripture and through that God understands me and it validates and allows me to experience those things. And so when I see John here, the John the Baptist, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament saying, I'm not sure. Are you really the one? I, I identify with his doubt and I am relieved to know I am in good company when I have doubts. There are days when even the heroes of the faith struggle. There are days where David was writing his, his Psalms and, and he's like, I don't understand and everyone has come upon me and they're all out to get me. There, there are days where the heroes of the scriptures are very honest about their struggles and John had some doubts. And if John can have doubts and Jesus doesn't rebuke him, then when I have doubts, Jesus doesn't rebuke me. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. John, my brother, my friend, great prophet, please don't stumble because of this. I wish I could come to you, but I can't. I wish I could come set you free right now, but that isn't what I've been called to do. I've not been called to raise up that sword. And when things are wrong in our life, I know God is in heaven saying, oh, I, I just, I wish I could come to you and I, I wish I could make it all right at this moment. In this instance, I wish that I could do something, but you will be blessed if you don't allow this stumble. If you don't allow this to draw you away from me, know that one day I will make things right. I have days of doubts. And, and sometimes, you know what, I'll be honest, sometimes those days, they go a little longer than a few days. There have been seasons that are darker where you feel like you're trapped in that, that prison where you think maybe the whole Jesus thing is kind of stupid. But when you step over that doubt and you remember the truth of your past experiences and you remember the, the truth of, of how God has transformed your life, there is a great blessing in that. When I read the Bible or pray and something just makes sense, something changes in my heart, it transforms me in my heart. When I'm renewed by the changing of uh, the, trans, you know, the transformation of my mind, when the Holy Spirit helps me to grow and all of a sudden uh, from day to day, I say, I am a little more kind and a little more compassionate and a little more empathetic and a little more forgiving. And I realize that God is working inside of me and it is a great blessing to have faith in God. When I visited Israel earlier this year and I went to a lot of these places, the places that I talk about here and I, and I experienced that and went, I, it helps me. It helps my faith. It helps me to ground that and say, this is real history. These are real people. This is real stuff. And it, and it, and it moves me 
to have faith. When things are bleak, but also when things are good. There's a blessing in overcoming the stumble of doubt. So faith in God is, it's not built on certainty. And we, we desperately want that, but that's not how relationship works. Faith in God is built on a covenant of trust. When I um, married Jess, it was 15 years ago, when we stood, even though we were very young and naive and very full of hope, we couldn't honestly look at each other in the eyes of that altar and say with 100% certainty, this is going to work. But that's not, that's not why we got married. That's not what that covenant was about. It was about saying, I trust you and I trust that this is um, a relationship that we can invest in. And we make a covenant of faith and trust to one another and then we go on a long journey. And there are challenges and stumbles and as we overcome them, there is great blessing. So the same is true in our relationship with God is that it is a covenant of trust. It's not certain. But when we overcome the doubt, there is a great blessing. We are blessed when we choose faith and trust and hope. And I believe that these things can make those dark days when things don't go right, just a little bit brighter. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that, that you love us and that even when uh, the circumstances of this broken world don't allow you to, to fix things, that you keep a note of that. That you keep a note of it because you've promised to make wrong things right and that those who will mourn, they'll be comforted and those who, those who weep will be given some joy and those who are hungry will be given some food and those who've been um, kicked out of the land will be given some land and, and that you are going to make wrong things right again. So I pray that as we experience those challenges that we wouldn't stumble that as the, the cracks in our certainty begin to, to wedge in, that we would push, push them back out a little bit and just say, you know, I have faith and I have hope and I have trust in you. And I pray that we would know your blessing. And I thank you that, that just like those dark days for John when he was in prison questioning, that you still loved him, that you still knew him and that you were still with him. So I pray that as we have those dark days, you know, in our thinking, but also just in our circumstances, when things aren't well, I pray that you would help us and comfort us. In Jesus' name, amen.